Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. We found Acts chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 29. If you have found that, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me, the honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning, Acts chapter 2, verse 29. We're going to read quite a few verses. I promise I won't preach on every one of those, but we're going to start the 29th verse and it says this. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He perceived this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will come. Father, this morning we have had a marvelous time. Those who together singing praises to your name witnessing the power of the resurrection from the dead of, of your son Jesus Christ in the picture and baptism this morning. We've celebrated with Jackson as he's professed to the world that Jesus is his Lord and his Savior. And now, Father, as we approach your throne of grace through your word, I ask this of you. That you focus our attention solely upon you. Let us hear your still, small voice that you make very little of this preacher. Very much of yourself today that we may see you in all of your glory. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we pray this. Amen and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today's sermon is entitled this. So, what's the big deal about baptism? So, what's the big deal about baptism? We've been looking at God's vision for Moore Street Baptist Church this year. And I, and I think we would be remiss not to stop and see where the ordinance of baptism fits into this vision for Moore's Creek. How can a church know the vision of God to the church? It's a question that always arises in my mind. I think you can start with being faithful, being faithful to what God has already clearly instructed us to do in His Word. And one clear instruction in His Word to the church is that we are to, as He says at the end of Matthew, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A lot of times to see what God has in store for you down the road, you must do that which he has told you to do today. And today he has told us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism 
has seemed to lose its importance in the church today, quite honestly. You know, when it comes to the Lord's table, we gather around it with some fear and trembling due to what's said in the Word about how we are to approach that table and that ordinance, knowing that we are to come, having repented of the sin in our life, being uh, clean hands and a pure heart before we approach that table. We've even taken it to the point now that we do it quarterly, where in the original church, they would do it almost every week. Every week, and they gather together. But baptism has really lost some of its importance. There are some who say that baptism is a dispensational practice, and it was really more of the time of the apostles. There are some who say it's done for children, that they might have the opportunity to, to go to heaven someday. Some say it's okay just to sprinkle with water and, and, and say that they've been baptized. Some, some say this act of baptism is really just a legalistic practice of man to try to save themselves. Yet baptism is a very important part of what it means to be a Christian. And I believe the Bible gives us very clear instruction, very clear instruction and indication of its importance in our church today. There are three areas of importance, three areas of importance in regard to baptism and how it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ that I see in this text this morning. The very first thing that I see in this text this morning is we're to be baptized because Jesus is Lord. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, He becomes our Lord. As best I can tell, when I look through the Bible this week, trying to see how many times Jesus was called Savior and how many times He was called Lord, I was shocked. There are 24 times I can find in the New Testament that Jesus was referenced as Savior. 24 times. There are 242 references to Him being Lord. See the significance? See the significance of Him being Lord in your life? There is more to our relationship with Jesus Christ than just Him saving you from your sins. Jesus said we are to take up our cross daily and follow Him. We're to give up those things that hold so precious to us in this world to take on to ourselves those things which are precious to Him in this world. We are to deny ourselves and follow Him. See, salvation starts you on the path of denial. Denial of all those things that you've locked your arms around and have precious, held precious to in this world. You were to let go of those things with empty hands so God can fill those hands that are empty with the things that are precious to Him. The things that are precious to Him. In Acts 2, that verse, that uh, passage that we read in the 36th verse, it said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. I find it interesting. We look at it, it says, yes, the house of Israel. But understand this, the Bible tells us that we are grafted into the house of Israel through what Jesus Christ has done for us. You see, Israel was God's chosen people. But when they would not hear the message, the message went out to the Gentiles, of which we are. We were grafted into the body. We were brought into the body. We were adopted into the body of Israel. And you are now part of that house of Israel. And it says that this house of Israel should assuredly know one thing. The man that you crucified, you crucified. God has made Lord in Christ. You see, there's only one reason that Christ called upon the cross and that Jew. There was nothing of him that needed forgiveness. There was everything else that did. When we know that he was crucified, we know that he was crucified because of your sin and mine. And it says that man that we crucified, we nailed nails in his hands, we 
shoved the crown on his head. We drove a spirit aside. That man, God made Lord and Christ. We are to be baptized because he is Lord. Why? The very first thing that comes to mind when I think of him being Lord is we're to be baptized because he is Lord. Because we are going to follow his example. We're going to follow his example. We are to be in life, in this life, exactly what Jesus was. We're to show to this world who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And back in Matthew, back in Matthew, the third chapter. Back in Matthew, the third chapter. In verse 13, it says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John in the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John, he tried to prevent him, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to see me. So here he comes to his kinfolk. His kinfolk, way deep in the Jordan. He says, I need to be baptized. And John says, oh, oh I'm going to save you. <coughs> I know who you are. I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. He goes on to say, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Did he allow it? And it says, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and a light upon him. And suddenly this voice, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All those who repented of sin and believed were being baptized by John. John was baptizing there in the Jordan. And it says in the third verse of that same chapter, it says, uh, in the second verse of that same chapter there, it actually says that you are to repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what John was preaching to those who were coming is that you must repent. What does it mean to repent? <clears throat> repent means to turn your back on that sin that you've been doing and go a different direction. It means that that sin that you've been so caught up in, that's been so consuming in your life, that's been all that you wanted, suddenly no longer tastes good, no longer looks good, no longer smells good, no longer is a desire of your life, and you set that aside and you turn it back or and you go in the opposite direction. What is the opposite direction? If sinfulness is one direction, righteousness is the opposite direction. It doesn't say do a 360, it says do a 180. Turn your back on it. He's saying, turn your back on that sin and follow Jesus. And for all of those who believe that, he was baptized in those. And Jesus, it says, came to John in the Jordan to be baptized. Yet Jesus had never seen it. Jesus had never seen it. He didn't need the message of repeat. For there was no sin in him. It says he was the only perfect person who ever lived on this earth. He had never sinned. And John tried to stop and said, verse 14, he says, no, no, no. I'm not baptizing you. You need to be done in this old sinner. You need to be the one that's washing away my sins. But Jesus said, no, permit it. Permit it now so that his fulfillment of all righteousness. Fulfillment of all righteousness. See, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He was baptized as a picture of his death, burial, and his resurrection. He was baptized as an example to those of us who would believe on what he had done. He was baptized as a public identification with taking on our sins on the cross. He was baptized as an example to us. When Jesus was baptized and rose from the water, the Father showed his approval. It says not only did the heavens open and the Holy Spirit came as a dove, but the voice of God was audibly heard. He says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, we are to follow in baptism.
Christ set it as an example. Wouldn't you love to know? Wouldn't you love to know one day you're going to hear God say, Beloved son, I am so pleased. And you know what is going to happen? It's going to happen. There's going to be a day that you stand. You stand before the Almighty God. For some, he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Leave. You're not mine. For others, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the glory that I've made for you. There will be that day. So we're to follow because of his example. We're also to follow because of obedience. Because of obedience. The one thing that rises to the top of Jesus' message when we hear him speak, and he says, to be a Christ follower, you must be obedient. Let's face it. This world we live in today, obedience is not high on the top of anybody's list. It's not high on the top of anybody's list. Nobody wants a boss. Nobody wants anybody telling them what to do. It's gotten to where most people show no authority for anybody any longer. I watch things on TV. I love to watch those live PD shows. Anybody else? Am I the only one? Am I the only one? I love to watch those things. But you know what is just striking when I see this? The number of people that decide they're going to run from the law, or they're going to fight them when they grab them, or they just blatantly say, I don't know what that is that fell out of my pocket. It ain't mine. But I'm thinking to myself, what happened? What happened in the world when the person who was put here to protect us and wears the badge, carries the, the flashlight. It seems like it's always on. You ever notice that daylight or whatever? It's always on. They have the nightstick. They're wearing a gun. They're wearing a gun. And they're going to run from the guy? You know, we no longer have respect for any authority. Yet as a Christian, as a Christian, we're not only to have respect for who Jesus Christ is, but we're be to be obedient. In John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, 10, it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, even if I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In John 15, 20, it says, remember the word that I said to you, the servant is not greater than the Lord. You see, when He becomes the Lord of your life, you are not greater than Him. To show your obedience to Him, you keep those commandments which He has put in place. You do those things. By doing those things, you show your love for Him. And guess what? He said, I showed my love for my father because I kept his commandments. See, when you are brought for the bondage of sin, Jesus becomes your Lord. When you're still in sin, you have a Lord. His name is Satan. You may think you run your own life, but you don't. Because there's not a one of us that can be honest with ourselves or anybody else and say that sin has led us anywhere good. See, there's a consequence for sin in your life. And I don't know of any of the consequences for sin in your life that makes you a better person. So you wouldn't choose on your own to be an alcoholic, a drug addict, to run around on your wife, to do those things. You wouldn't choose that because you know the outcome of those things in your life. So don't tell me you're the Lord of your life. No, Satan's the Lord of your life if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because you know evidence in your own life that the outcome of sin in your life is death. So don't tell me that you run your own life. You have a Lord. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Satan is the one you do know as your Lord and Savior. And you see, he tells us that he brought us out of bondage of sin. He adopted us. He bought us off the table of slaves of sin. He said, I'll take him. I'll take her. 
I'll take him. I'll take her. He purchased you. And once he became the purchaser, he became your Lord. And once he became your Lord, he calls the shots. If he does not call the shots in your life, he is not your Lord. If he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. If he is not your Savior, your destiny is a place called hell, fall of eternity. Can't make it any simpler. See, what happens when we have two lords or two masters? Matthew 6, 24 says, No man can serve two masters. And don't we know that? For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Don't think you can put one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. Doesn't happen. God said, I would rather you either be all in or all out, because if you stand in the middle, you make me vomit. That's what he says. You see, you can't serve two masters. Either Jesus is Lord of your life or he is not. And if he is Lord of your life, obedience to him is required. It is not an option. Obedience is required. Anything short of obedience to an almighty Lord who died upon a cross for your sin, anything short of obedience to him is sin. Call it what it is. To not be obedient to God, to Christ, to his command, to his call in your life is sin. What is it that relates all these things? What is it that that relates these things to what we practice this morning in, in baptism? I think about what Jesus himself said about baptism. I referenced it with the kids, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and he spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. See his lordship? All power. He says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. See the obedience? Teaching them to observe all things. And he says, And lo, I will be with you. No, that doesn't mean it's unbiblical to fly. It's not L-O-W, I will be with you. It's L-O, I will be with you. Was I the only one that got that? I was. He says, Lo, I will be with you. Obedience to the Almighty God through Jesus Christ puts you in perfect fellowship with Jesus. And He'll always be there. He'll always be there. See, to be disobedient brings sin, and sin brings separation. Sin brings separation. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. And the first thing we are to do when we make disciples is for them to be baptized. To be baptized. And he says that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. We will keep his commandments. So, we're to be baptized because he is Lord. I don't know about you, but that's enough of an answer for me. There, has to, there doesn't have to be anything else. We're to be baptized because he is Lord. But you know, there is a second reason very quickly. Not only are we to be baptized because he is Lord, we're to be baptized because he is our Savior. Because he is our Savior. That same Acts passage, Acts 2.36, said that, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, Lord, which means he has all authority, and Christ, which means he is that Messiah, the promised one, the promised Savior. 
God gave us the example of the fact that there would be a Savior all the way back in the book of Genesis when man chose to sin against an almighty God. And he showed us in the book of Genesis by making a covering for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness himself by spilling the blood of a lamb to show to us that there would have to be uh, spilling of blood for remission of sins, as the Bible says, by taking away from them those things which they had covered them with and sowing for them a covering of his own. He showed that he one day would send a Savior, send a Savior. Savior. He would send a Savior to die on a cross to shed His blood for the remission of our sins, to let His righteousness be our covering so at the end of the day, we would have life eternal. We would have life eternal through Him. The same picture that was painted all the way back in the book of Genesis and carries through the gospel is being spoke of right here in Acts. Being spoke of to the house of Israel, to us, saying He's been made Lord, all authority, but He's Christ also, that Messiah, that Lamb that came, the promised Messiah. The Bible tells us that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is there one that would be willing to raise your hand and say, that doesn't apply to you? I'm not going to raise mine. I know me. I know of my sinful life. The Bible says we've all come short of the glory of God by sinning. So it's right on target. We all know that. And Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that which had sinned. He came to do that. That which was lost was you and me. That that which was lost was us. We were in need of a Savior. And how is it that Jesus saved us? How is it that this man, this God-man, saved you and I from a cross thousands of years ago? How did he save us? He became that sacrificial lamb to die in our place that God set forth in the book of Genesis that was carried through in the, in the uh, offerings of Israel that was prophesied about from the great prophets of the Bible. He became that sacrificial lamb. It says in the Bible that he bore our sins on the cross of Calvary. It says that it so weighed heavy upon him the sins that he was about to bear in the garden the night before that the sweat that fell from his brow was as blood. He wasn't worried about death. Physical death was not the issue. It was the taking on the sin weight of the world that was the issue. And it just weighed heavy upon him because he knew that that was going to happen. Just as the Bible said, he died on the cross. And the Bible says that he gave up his life. Nobody took his life from him. For on the cross, in the last moments, he said, Father, I give you my soul. Why? Because my work here is finished. And he gave up the ghost. He died for you. And it says his body was taken off of that cross and was placed in a borrowed tomb. Isn't it interesting? In his life, he had nowhere to lay his head, no place to call home. In his death, he didn't even have a tomb. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled in front of the tomb and it was sealed and guarded because word had spread that he had said, I will rise again. And they feared that the disciples would come and steal the body. Three days. Three days later, when they came to the tomb to give him a proper burial, guess what they found? The tomb was open. The stone had been rolled away. And guess what was not there? Jesus. Jesus. He was not there. He rose on the third day by the power of the Holy Spirit that you might have eternal life. How does that apply to you? Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. 
Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of that sin in your life is eternal death. Both physical, yes, because the sin that we commit brings physical harm to our bodies. But most importantly, it brings eternal death at a place called hell. But it says in that same verse, but the gift of God is gracious eternal life. Gracious eternal life. And how do we know that it's gracious eternal life? Because he said, for God, the almighty God, the creator of all things, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you and me, whosoever believes in him should not, should not have eternal death, but should have eternal life. You see, he tells us. That even though we chose to sin against him, he loved us by killing his son on a cross for our sins. Matter of fact, it says in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till you decided that you were going to follow him. While you were still a sinner, he crawled upon the cross and said, I will spill my blood for that sinner's sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 8 and 9, that if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, He died on the cross for us. If we'll believe that, if we'll confess it with our mouth, then we will be saved. What happens when we're saved? We're baptized. See, baptism is a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us, what Christ did for us. I know we're running short on time, but flip over to Romans with me. I can't help but show you this. Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I'll start reading. It says this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He's saying what? You've come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've died to sin and now you're going to live in it? How ridiculous is that statement? He goes on to say, or do you not know? Do you not know this? That as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. See the picture of being immersed under the water? We're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You see, we're placed into the water of the baptismal pool under the water as a sign of being dead to sin in Jesus Christ. We rise from that water to walk a new life. A new life. A new life in Jesus Christ. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certain we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Aren't you glad to know this morning you've been freed from sin? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. He's not a statue on a wall. He's not bones in a a tomb somewhere. He's not encased in glass that we can walk past. Jesus Christ is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. He says, because he's alive, you're alive. He says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, he's going to die no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives... The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
with that thought. Verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14, my favorite, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Hallelujah. You see, we no longer are held down by the law of sin. We are under the grace of God through the blood that's shed by Jesus Christ for your sin and mine. And obedience to that because he is Lord is, is that we would follow him in his example. Obedience to that is that we would be baptized after we're saved as an example to the world of just how God has raised us from the dead. See, baptism is an outward sign of an inward change that comes from believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead that you might have eternal life. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is because you're saved. It's because you're saved. Baptism is a proclamation of, of Christ's work in your life to a world that needs to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Remember the story, and I'll just briefly tell it to you instead of reading it, but out of Acts 8, you remember this guy named Philip and this eunuch that was riding along in a chariot. This eunuch was riding in a chariot, and he was reading the book of Isaiah. He was just coming from Jerusalem having worshipped, and he was reading the book of Isaiah as he rode along. And, and Philip had been told by the Holy Spirit to go. Go and overtake this chariot that this eunuch's riding in and jump up in the chariot. Just bail right on up in the thing and say, hey, what you reading? And Philip just runs right along. He catches up to the chariot. He bails in and he says, let me ask you a question, Mr. Eunuch. Do you understand what you're reading? How many of you read the Bible sometimes? It goes, boy, I wish somebody would explain this thing to me. It happens to me. Your pastor? Yes. That's exactly what this guy said in verse 31 of chapter 8. He says, how can I unless someone would guide me? You think it was a coincidence that the Holy Spirit had Philip running alongside the chariot? No coincidence whatsoever. Holy Spirit knew in advance the eunuch was going to need someone to explain the story to him. So it says that Philip got in a chariot. And it says that he began in verse 35 with that passage and preached to him Jesus. Preached to him Jesus. And I know part of that was the fact that he preached and he died for his sins, that he was buried, and that he rose the third day, and that once you come to know that fact, that you need to be buried in death with Christ and raised to a new life through baptism. How do I know that? Because in verse 36, it says as they were riding along, the eunuch said, Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why can't I be baptized? Why can't I be baptized? Look, there's a pond right here. And they hauled it up the chariot. When he says, what would hinder me? And Philip looks at him and he says these words, If you believe with all of your heart, you may. That day that eunuch believed in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, that day that eunuch was buried in the water to symbolize his death to sin and rose in life with Christ. At the realization that Christ was his Savior, the eunuch wanted to be obedient, be obedient to him as Savior. He wanted to be obedient to him as Savior and be baptized. See, why are we baptized? Because Jesus is Lord. We're also baptized because he's a Savior. And third, very quickly, we are baptized because Jesus is the cornerstone. See, never forget, not only, not only is he your Savior from sin, not only is he the Lord of your life, but he is the cornerstone of the church. He's the cornerstone of the body. It says in that Acts passage that God has made Jesus who he is and what he is 
to us. God has made him. In Isaiah 28, it's prophesied. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Can't forget, Jesus also asked his disciples along these same lines in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, he asked this question. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? I, the the Son of Man. And it says that some answered, uh, John the Baptist, uh, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, maybe some of the other prophets. (laughs) Then Jesus looked and said, But who do you? Say that I am. Who, who do you? He brought it right down personal. He got up in their grill, as we'd say. He said, who do you? Who do you say that I am? And it says Simon Peter. Remember Simon Peter? He had the foot-shaped mouth. He's really easy to pick out. He was constantly sticking his foot in his mouth by being the first to answer. He speaks up and he says, <laughs> Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, some had said it was John the Baptizer, Elijah, Jeremiah, the prophets. And Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in verse 18, verse 18, he says this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We don't have time this morning, but many said that the church is built upon Peter. It's not the case. It's not the case. The church is not built upon a man. There are some religions that believe it started with Peter and continues through all of the, the leaders of the church even to this day. But that's not the rock that the church is built on. The rock that the church is built on is the statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The cornerstone of the church is Christ, the Son of the living God. And it says, He will build His church. Guess who doesn't own this church? Any of us. This is Christ's. The body is Christ. Paul reminds us what makes up the church in some very familiar passages for you guys back in the book of Ephesians. And I'll close with these. I'll close with these very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reminds us of this. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In other words, you're all part. If you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you're all part of that body. He says, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being that chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. See the church is put together by God on the foundation of Jesus Christ for a dwelling place for him. Each of you are an intricate piece of the body of the building of the church and it all starts with that cornerstone. And what is significant? What is significant about Jesus being the cornerstone? And what is significant about that cornerstone and the baptism following his example, following in obedience, following the fact that he's your savior? What is significant about those things? In Ephesians 4 4, Paul tells us something very, very interesting. In Ephesians 4 4, he says this there is one body. So universally, there is one body. There's one body, the body of Christ. He says, and you know what? There is one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Hopefully in your Bible it's a capital S. It says there's one body and there's one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. You know there's only one salvation. There's only one way 
to righteousness. There's only one way to a right standing with God, and that's Jesus Christ. There's only one. There is no other. There is no other. Is that narrow-minded? Absolutely. And why am I not ashamed to be narrow-minded? Because Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, said it. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You want to get to the Father? You go through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you display it through baptism. So he says, there's one Lord. There's one Lord. He says, there's one body, one spirit, just you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. And this proves that he was probably from the south. He says he was in you all. Y'all. He was southern. You got to love him. He says, he's in, he's in you. All of us are indwelt by that same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. We've all been saved by that same Jesus Christ. We all are living for the glory of one Father. We all are unified through one baptism as the body. See, Paul reminds us that we're saved in the same way to be a part of the body in the same manner. Using different gifts and talents, yes but all equal members of that body. And it's in the unity of the body that the world sees Jesus Christ. It is in the unity of the body that the world sees Jesus Christ. Last scripture, and we'll close, John 17. John 17 is a beautiful picture of, of unity. We'll just read from the 20th verse. It says this. This is Jesus, by the way. He's prayed for himself, he's prayed for his disciples, and now he's praying for all believers when he says these words. I do not pray for these alone, talking about the disciples that are there with him, but also for all those who believe in me through their word, through the preaching of the gospel, for all those who believe. Who are the ones who believe? All of you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're the ones he's praying for. He goes on to say that they all may be one. Then he gives an example. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. He says, what's the beauty of this baptism into the body, this baptism into belief, this, this believing in Jesus Christ? It, it makes us one with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he says that the world may believe that you sent me. What is the purpose of the unity in the body of Christ? That the world may come to know why Jesus came. And why did Jesus come? Jesus came because you and I sinned and needed a Savior. He came to seek us out. He came to call us to Himself. He came to cover our sins with His own precious blood. He was buried in a tomb and rose that you might have eternal life. He came for you to have eternal life. See, He came because of our sin. He died because of our sin. And He rose because God is powerful and glorious and desires a relationship with us for all of eternity. When we think about the vision of the church, I can't help but ask the question, where do you stand with your public display of Jesus Christ in your life? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.